This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by the Magic Monday podcast. Magic Monday is a new podcast about all the ways we experience and use the magic of the universe in our everyday lives. Give it a listen to learn about energy healing, tap into the energy of the week, and get fresh magical ideas throughout the wheel of the year. Find Magic Monday at magicmondaypodcast.com and wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Inner Voice, a six-week online intuition course taught by intuitive tarot teacher and former Witch Wave pod guest, Lindsay Mack. Packed with rich and informative lessons, intuitive guidance, and tarot wisdom, Inner Voice is an invitation to deepen our connection to our intuition, expand our channel, and step into greater intimacy with our soul's truth. Enrollment for Inner Voice ends tomorrow, Thursday, January 9th. To sign up or learn more, visit www.lindsaymack.com slash inner voice. That's www.lindsaym as in magic, A-C-K dot com slash inner voice. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. Welcome to the Witch Wave and Happy New Year. Yes, it is January, which is a time when we typically make resolutions and set goals for the things we want to obtain or transform in our lives. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Over the last few years, I've actually shifted my resolutions from things I should do, like exercise more and eat better and yada, 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 to things I really want to do. So this year, my resolutions list includes things like doing more paper marbling because it makes me feel so good and taking one of those nature tours this summer where I can see the horseshoe crabs mate under the full moon because it sounds so wild and witchy to me and I've always wanted to do that. Ooh, maybe we need a horseshoe crabs episode this season, (laughs) but I digress. In my case, I've modified my approach to resolutions because I'm one of those people who is constantly setting goals for myself, let alone doing spells and other magical work to manifest the changes I'm looking for in my life. 
but I realize not everyone is like me. And so I thought I'd take a moment to address the concept of manifestation. When we manifest things, in other words, when we consciously make change happen, we are engaging in a truly magical act. And in my experience, there are a few very clear steps to manifestation, even though the styles or approaches we may take can vary. So in order to manifest something, first, we set our intention. So let's say you want to manifest a career change for yourself. A good initial step is to come up with a sentence or a few phrases which state what it is you are hoping for, and here's the important part, as if you already have it. In other words, you might try saying something like, I have a job that is fulfilling, nourishing, and financially stable rather than saying, I want a job, or I will find a job, and so on. So speak in the present tense. And right off the bat, when you're wording this intention, I suggest that you leave some room for spirit to have a better idea than you do. Now, this is a tiny bit controversial because you'll often hear people say that you should be as specific as possible when it comes to manifesting what you want or asking for what you want. But in my life, I've learned that sometimes the specific thing I think I want isn't actually always what's best. So I now usually focus more on the values or emotions or higher purpose around my desires. So instead of saying, I own a cherry red Corvette, you might try saying, I own a car that is safe, stylish, and gets me where I need to go. Because maybe that Corvette looks good, but will need a ton of repairs. So Spirit can help find an even better car for you. So in my wording, I allow for the best possible outcome whenever I can. Okay, so now you have your intention, but before you cast it out, you are going to want to shift your consciousness or shift your frequency, your energy, your vibration, whatever words you prefer. And you know that this is happening because you will feel it in your body. You can do this by breathing, meditating, chanting, doing visualization, dancing, being still, having sex, singing, whatever technique you use. And if you're like me, you'll switch it up a lot. But whatever it is you do should result in a physical and mental and I would argue spiritual gear that feels like it's shifting inside of you. I know it's difficult to put into words, but you know when it happens, you really do feel it. There is a sense of focus and heightened sensitivity that occurs when I have gotten beyond the mundane thought patterns of my mind and tap into something more expansive. 
So now you are in this state of heightened intuition and awareness and aliveness. And from this state is when you cast your spell. This can be as simple as uttering your phrase of intention out loud over and over. It can be writing your intention on a piece of paper and then burning it or sleeping with it under your pillow for a certain period of time or moon cycle. It can be drawing a sigil, lighting a candle, writing a poem, or doing something much more elaborate and ritualized. There are so many books and websites on spellcasting and ways to incorporate various symbols and ingredients, but I promise you can also make up your own and just do whatever feels intuitively right for you. The technique really is beside the point. What matters is your intention and how you feel and focus when you are casting. And after you've done this, I deeply recommend doing some kind of offering of gratitude to spirit or your guides or gods or ancestors or whomever else you feel called to thank for their assistance. It can be simply saying thank you to them in your heart or out loud. It can be leaving flowers or libations or other gifts out for them. But whatever it is, I highly recommend you do this because it is the polite thing to do. Magic with Manners 2020. Get into it. And then, finally, you have to actively put in the work of meeting spirit halfway. In other words, if you cast a career spell... But then don't send resumes out or do any research or have any conversations with people whose careers inspire you, etc. Don't be surprised if you have trouble manifesting a new career. Magic is an amplifier of energy. It is not a cure-all, fix-everything, silver bullet. You need to show up for it. You need to be in relationship with it. And that means doing your part so it has something to work with. But if you are able to follow the steps, this can be extremely effective and oftentimes astonishing. It doesn't always work out exactly how or when you are picturing it, but it does work. I often say, if it didn't work, I wouldn't bother with it. I'm a very pragmatic witch. And I believe we all have the power to manifest change. My guest today, the number one New York Times bestselling author, Augustine Burroughs, is a master manifester. As you'll hear, he has his own ways of thinking about witchcraft and manifestation, and he shares some of his magical experiences as both a writer and a witch in today's conversation. But before we get to that, first, let's check and see what's come through on The Witch Wire. Who is it? Witches! Mary Elizabeth writes, 
I have a question about sigils and using symbolism as a part of witchcraft. I am very, very drawn to visual art and symbolism. As a writer, the ability to be moved by things without words is basically the height of spirituality to me. Connecting with the ineffable and feeling before thinking. When I'm creating my own spells, it always feels like visual representation is a missing step that I want to explore. But for all my high school doodling and notebooks, I have absolutely zero artistic ability. Whenever I try to make my own sigils, I feel ridiculous, and the results are disastrously silly. I'm not comfortable taking any sigils I find on places like Tumblr or Pinterest either, because I don't know what they really mean, and I'm afraid they could be an actual culture's language that I'm accidentally appropriating. I don't want to find out I wrote a spell using the Japanese word for barbecue, a la Ariana Grande's tattoo. (laughs) Do you have any questions? Maybe techniques for making my own sigils that won't look terrible, or a known, reliable collection of sigils or symbols I can borrow from? Or maybe there's some other way to explore the visual in my rituals. Any advice would be much appreciated. Hello, Mary Elizabeth. So I have two responses to your inquiry. The first is that you stated that you are a writer. So is it possible that you could embrace this part of your identity more fully and integrate it into your witchcraft? There is no modality of magic that is better than another. Writing a beautifully crafted spell or chant or invocation is every bit as powerful as drawing a sigil or painting a picture. So if that's what comes naturally to you and drawing feels funny or is giving you a sense of self-criticism or self-consciousness, it's possible that that's not going to be the more effective means of magic making for you. And that is totally fine. So just something to consider. However, if your heart really is set on doing something visual, there are so many other things you can do besides draw. I know that vision boards have become a bit of a cliche, but honestly, they are a very good witchcraft go-to when it comes to manifestation. That's right, You can grab those scissors and that glue stick and start cutting up magazines or images that you print out from the internet that represent the things that you are hoping to manifest. Likewise, incorporating postcards of artwork that you love or figurines of deities or spirits that you feel connected to also all count as visual magic. When I was a teenager, my bedroom was covered in images that I cut out of the people and paintings and films and comic books that inspired me, and I truly believe that it in part helped me become the wonderful weirdo that I am today. So in sum, using found images rather than images that you generate yourself is a totally legit way of making magic. They don't call it arts and crafts for nothing. 
Now, on to my guest. Augustine Burroughs is the author of many best-selling books and memoirs, including the literary behemoth, Running with Scissors, which is about his unconventional, many might say dysfunctional, childhood, which included his very creative, if mentally unstable, poet mother, and the highly controversial therapist who became his legal guardian. In 2006, this book was adapted into a film starring Annette Bening, Alec Baldwin, and Brian Cox. Burroughs' follow-up books, Dry, Magical Thinking, Lust and Wonder, and several others cover topics such as his journey to sobriety, his relationships, and his deep and abiding love of jewelry and each is written with his signature wit and candor. Despite his consistently confessional approach, however, Burroughs' latest book, Toil and Trouble, explores a subject he had yet to broach, the fact that he identifies as a witch and has been practicing witchcraft throughout his whole life. In our conversation, he shares some of his spell-casting techniques, discusses how magic has affected his marriage and career, and talks about why this newest book was the scariest one for him to write. Augustine joined me from his home in Connecticut via Skype. Augustine Burroughs, welcome to The Witch Wave. Hi, Pam. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I am just delighted to hear your voice because I have heard your words in my head for a while now, so it really is a thrill. Thank you. I I wanted to actually start with your newest book, uh, which is why you are here on The Witch Wave, um, called mm -hmm. Toil and Trouble. And this is... You're the latest installation of your several memoirs where you are revealing to the world that you do, in fact, identify as a witch. So my first question for you is, you know, you've been so candid and so revelatory before. Why didn't you tell us about your witchcraft in earlier books and what made you feel ready to do so now? You know, it's funny and still odd for me and new for me. I've written so many memoirs and essay collections about my life that with my last previous book, Lust and Wonder, I thought that's it for memoir. The world does not need more memoir from middle-aged white guys. Like there are so many more important voices out there that need to be heard. I just need to get out of the way and like write, you know, fiction. Mm. It's interesting to me when I look back and think about all the times that people would ask me, is there anything about you or your life or that you would never write about? And I would always answer, oh no, nothing, nothing is off limits. No. But there was one thing that was off limits and it was so off the table that I never even realized I wasn't being completely transparent. Mm. There was something so private that it never occurred to me that 
I was keeping a secret, you know, the secret being that I've, I'm a witch and that I've been a witch, you know, from very, very early childhood. It was something that I discovered or my mother recognized in me early on. Basically, it's how the book starts. It's I was on the school bus, elementary school, and I always like to take the sort of the hump seat. Now, I was bullied a lot in school and teased a lot. And one of the things I was teased and bullied about was that I was disconnected. I would sort of space out. Sure. And I would look out the window, but I would never focus on anything. My mind was really blank. To this day, especially when I'm like backstage, someone will come up to me, maybe the host, and they'll apologize. I'm sorry you look so deep in thought, but I'm not. I'm just, I'm literally not thinking anything. Hmm. So I was on the bus and there were two little bridges. We lived on a dirt road in Massachusetts. And just as the wheels, you know, bumped back off the bridge, my grandmother's face popped into my head, an image of her face and her forehead. She had very thin hair, but her forehead was, um, there was like a laceration. It was cut. And I don't know how to explain it other than knowledge that something was very, very, very wrong. With your grandmother? With my grandmother. Now, the, the bus stopped at my house. I ran up the driveway and rang the doorbell for my mother to open it like I did every day. And she was on the telephone. The phone was actually attached uh, to the wall. I was frantic and I was saying, what happened to Amma? What happened to Amma? Something happened to Amma. Mm-hmm. And my mother looked at me. You know, she sort of cupped her hand over the phone and she said, what did you say? And I said, what happened to Amma? Something bad happened to Amma. And she finished the call, and she said to me, that was your Uncle Mercer calling me from the hospital just now. And your, your grandmother has been in a car accident, and she has a punctured lung, and she has a cut on her forehead, but she's going to be okay. And then I said, Mom, how did I know? And my mother, and I can still see it, her face was shock and pride. And she hugged me and she said, you knew because you are my son. And that is when it began my journey, my learning about the fact that I came from a long line of witches and the family, my mother her mother, my mother's aunt, so my grandmother's sister, Mm -hmm. my uncle Mercer was uncomfortable with it. Yeah, you you write about that in the book. I did. And he didn't identify ever to me in words. And I don't I don't believe ever to my mother in words. He just he was scared of it. It just didn't make sense. My mother said to me, this is one of the things she said early on. Yes, it's not like the Wizard of Oz, and it's not about pointy hats. It's not supernatural. It is, in fact, sort of almost hypernatural. It's the most natural thing in the world, but it's private. Mm, mm. And because I think I was so bullied in school, if you go to school and you say, you know, I knew my grandmother was injured, knowing something that's impossible to know, they're going to make fun of you. And I didn't need any more encouragement. I just I internalized that it's the most natural thing in the world, but it's private. And I just never, ever spoke of it 
And yet it was such a part of my daily life. And, you know, when something is such a part of your life, too, for so long, you don't even think about it. I mean, I've known people who were colorblind and didn't even know until they were like in their 30s and 40s. I totally, totally get that. Right. Well, something something that is just occurring to me now, you know, if I'm thinking about the book that put you all on the map for us, right, Running with Scissors. Mm -hmm. And then I think about this most recent book, Toil and Trouble. I'm very happy for you that this most recent book, you know, there there's certainly some conflict and things you have to navigate. But generally speaking, you have manifested a what seems to be stable, happy life for yourself, which is very inspiring considering all of the challenges that you navigated as a younger person. And sometimes I wonder if when we're in finally a safer or more stable place, we can be even more risky with what we reveal about ourselves. Does that resonate with you? It does, I think, because you have a sort of hammock or safety net if you feel safe and secure in your personal life, in your home life, you do feel like you can take more risks. I mean, I think I took risks early on because I felt I have nothing to lose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of been always the place that I've come from as a writer. You know, go ahead and make fun of me. Don't believe me, whatever. It so doesn't matter because I have been through so much Nothing that you know you do or say or think is going to impact me. It's never been an issue except when it came to writing about witchcraft. Exactly. And that's why I'm so interested in knowing, Augustine, why now? Like, when did you decide to write about this? I didn't. The thing is, I didn't. So my mother very early on, you know, after school, she would teach me. And so much of it was about, you know, what not to do, what it isn't. Why you can't levitate? Why can't I levitate? Why can't I be like, you know, (laughs) Samantha Steven? Then my mother, as I entered adolescence, she was mentally ill and and the mental illness was exacerbated by the terrible therapy and medication that she was receiving. It's like her mind exploded, you know, and we never really recovered from that. Our relationship never recovered. So I didn't see her. We didn't have contact for the last, whatever, over a decade Mm. of her life. I was never going to write about witchcraft with a great Dane and he had leg surgery and I had to keep him perfectly still, which meant, you know, we couldn't sleep upstairs where the bedrooms are in this old house. So I bought a uh, memory foam mattress and laid on the floor and pushed the couch up against it and created like this playpen where I could stay all day and work and make sure that Otis, our great dame, didn't move. Mm, It sounds like almost like a a meditation chamber. Well, it had an odd effect. I mean, I was working, you know, on like thinking of a novel, thinking, thinking, writing, you know, trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And I just started writing. I mean, I just started writing about my mother and my grandmother and my aunt. And I wrote this book so fast. And it was three times the length that it is. Mm. I mean, I destroyed my laptop keyboard. It was so not planned. And my husband is my literary agent and just automatically compartmentalized. You know, like our relationship as literary agent and client 
remains totally through email. Like we never really sit in front of each other and talk about anything I'm going to do. <laughs> I was due for um, a manuscript and I gave it to my agent and he loved it and had a lot of changes to make in terms of cuts. But then he presented it to my editor and with a note, this is not what you're expecting. I'm actually not going to say anything about it. And I thought for sure my publisher would cancel the contract. The, Why? I owed them a novel. Yeah. And they were expecting it, you know, and they were not expecting another memoir. And yeah, and this memoir is so like, wait a minute. Like, why did you not talk about this way sooner? Mm. This is crazy. But my editor really loved it. It was funny because she was like, this explains so much about you. <laughs> I think my husband nails it when he said that witchcraft needs a new name and a new PR agent. <laughs> because so many people just really don't really know what it is and don't realize that it may be something that they have. And I have always thought it feels as though it comes from our female DNA mm. from our mother. I feel that it is a trait passed on through mothers. That's what it feels like. And I think that we have always had it. I don't know if everyone has it or if only some people do, but I do know that back before we had any form of communication, you know, when we were, when the woman if she was at the homestead raising children and the mate was out hunting, if the wild cats sort of started circling the camp, she would need a way to communicate with her mate. Stuff's going down at home. You need to get your butt back here. <laughs> this is not, things are not looking good. And I think that that ability is something that we have. I know I do. And I feel like if I have it, so many other people in my experience must have it. Absolutely. I think you're right that it's definitely tied to intuition and communication that kind of, I don't know, transcends time and space and, and the laws of what we understand to be physics, though I imagine those are going to evolve. And I'm thinking, and tell me if this resonates with you, at least in my experience and with the work I do, that the world or at least corners of the world are ready for this now. And I don't know if you ascribe to like collective unconscious theory or whatever, but if for whatever the reason, this is the story that you were compelled to tell, it could just be that it's because it was time to tell it. But you know what? That absolutely resonates with me. It feels like if it had been five years ago, people would have sort of given me a blank stare. Instead, when I was out traveling around, I would meet these very young people from all genders who identified as witches and were not struggling. Mm. You know, they identified as witches as someone might identify as having perfect pitch. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was just normal and natural. And I remember one, one woman was sharing an anecdote. We, I felt so related to her. Mm in a way that I've never felt really with any other of my books. I mean, I've of course have met people from who had dysfunctional childhoods as well. And I've written about my own addiction, 
my alcoholism. So yeah, I definitely have related to the alcoholics that I've met, but it's very different to relate to someone when they're talking about something that is not possible within physics as we know it. Yes, absolutely. And to totally relate and and to have that be like, you too, yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I love that. On that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hag Swag is a monthly subscription box geared towards weirdos, witches, hags, and alternative folk. Once subscribed, you will receive a variety of curated magical items right to your door to help amplify your craft. Hagswag curates offerings from witches worldwide to provide you with diverse and genuine offerings. Each month's theme has knowledge and offerings that are useful for both new and experienced individuals and that flow with the wheel of the year. Each theme also helps practitioners expand their existing knowledge and build their collection of tools while connecting with others in the community. Containing only cruelty-free, ethical, and gender-neutral items, this is suitable for hags of all walks of life. Use code WITCHWAVE, that's one word, WITCHWAVE, to get 5% off your first box at www.hagswag.ca. That's www.hagswag.ca. And you can also join the growing community in the Hag Coven Facebook group. So go on ahead and order your Hag Swag subscription box today. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today I'm speaking with Augustine Burroughs. So Augustine, you cover so much in your book from premonitions that you had as a child and that you've continued to have throughout your adulthood. Um, One of the anecdotes that really, you know, made my hair stand on end was when you talk about how you kind of knew that Hurricane Sandy was coming when you were still living here in New York, where I live. And that just was was pretty incredible to me and how you were preparing for it without knowing you were preparing. But in addition to premonitions, you also talk about casting spells. And Mm -hmm. in the book, the ways in which you cast spells, I mean, you certainly talk about using a candle here and there, but A lot of it is very language-based. You are a writer, and so writing your own spells seems to be the prime method of your magic. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. And, you know, one of the things that my mother taught me early on, and I'm sure this is different in everyone's experience, was that it isn't about the spell or the herb. It's about the, the mind, and it's about not wanting but creating it's focusing so i did not grow up with ritual mm-hmm. my mother did not do candle magic she did not ever write spells i mean except in her poetry yeah but she didn't execute them i did because i like them i love the paraphernalia and i think that whatever helps you focus if words or herbs or ritual can serve as a magnifying glass or a way to focus your mind, you know, that's why writing has been so good for me just on a personal level, because it's like my hands are busy doing something and that allows me to think. So if I write down what it is I want 
if I think about, you know, how to phrase it, it allows me to be extremely specific. Mm. Specificity is everything. I mean, if, if everything's got to be absolutely specific. Funny, it's like poetry in that sense, you know? Absolutely. It can't be a wasted word or an extra word or an ambiguous. You, know, you can't have ambiguity. And it's trying to, to locate that place of, of just certainty. Absolutely. The feeling of the sort of click that you sort of hear in your chest of like, mm-hmm. And it's frustrating because it doesn't, or at least for me, doesn't always work. I can't always do what I want. I can't always connect. You know, although several things have happened since the book's publication. I was going to ask about that. Let's skip ahead since that's where your head is at. What, what's happened? So my office where I'm speaking to you now is my office and it's in the attic. And I have collected jewelry since I was a child. And I actually own a jewelry store. So I have some pieces of jewelry upstairs, but I have lots of precious, important things on the wall, things people have given me. Mm-hmm. So my normal routine is to you know, wake up in the bedroom, which is on the second floor, and take the back staircase downstairs into the kitchen for coffee, upstairs to the top attic. And I walked into the dining room. You know, I walked down the back stairs into the dining room and I stopped right in the dining room because there was a black line running through the center of the world. Just a black line. It, it looked like drawn with a pencil, like, like a really, you know, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, you know, kind of a, a sketch, you know, over and over and over. And it was accompanied with knowledge. I may have trouble reaching my office. I may not be able to get there. There may be maybe damage. So I turned around and I went back upstairs where I keep a suitcase for um, like when I'm on a book tour and I pack everything on my shelf that was important to me and went downstairs and put it underneath the dining room table. And then I got coffee and then I went into the living room. I'm on the couch lengthwise. My back is against the arm. I put my laptop down and I heard a a sound and it just felt like the house was caving in Mm. and it startled me. And I jumped up and then glass just sprayed into the room and I turned around and, you know, we have a huge, huge tree right next to the kitchen and, you know, a big chunk of it was now in the room. Wow. I went outside. And I saw that the honey locust tree dropped a big branch and it landed right on the apex, right on the very top of the house. But the house itself is made out of chestnut. Mm. So that's a much stronger wood than honey locust, which is a very soft wood. So the branch broke in half and half of it slid just right down onto the patio on the other side of the house and just, you know, didn't do anything, landed on rocks. And the other half went straight down. And on its way to the ground, it bounced against the house and it punched the window in. Wow. So I went upstairs to the attic. And as I'm going up the stairs, I see, whew, what a relief. There's no puncture in the roof. But then I get upstairs and I stop because everything that was on that side of the attic where I had all my treasures, every single thing I left behind was now on 
the opposite side of the room. So that's actually the right below my, or right above my shelf where I kept my treasures. That's actually where the branch hit. Wow. And it was so powerful that it knocked everything against the other side. I mean, this is, I'm here now. So it's, it's got to be 20 feet, maybe more. A chair, 25 feet. That's the force of it. So everything that I had that was, would have been just completely destroyed. These fragile things people have made me over the years and given me. Sure, sure. So I have taken two completely irrational acts of packing in my life. Yes. You know, and one was first Superstorm Sandy, and then one was when this happened. And it's something that I'm not questioning it. I'm just like, oh, I've, I've, I just have to, to do it. Sure, sure. I want to talk about the house because your house in Connecticut is pretty much the main character of this book, Toil and Trouble. And you write really beautifully about how you just knew you had to have this house. You were living in New York City and looking online at houses, which I am guilty of doing all the time as well, and falling in love with this house and just knowing that this house was yours. And you do something interesting, Augustine, and I am going to question you about it, which is you wanted your husband to be on board with this house. And when he's first looking at the pictures online, he's not that into it. I did a bad thing. Yes, you did non-consensual magic, Augustine. I did a bad thing. (laughs) Um, I did something you're not supposed to ever do. Which is to cast a spell on your husband to, yeah, make him fall in love with this house as well. And so I, I wanted to ask you how you feel about having done that and how he feels, most importantly, of having that done to him. I mean, it, it seems I to know. have worked out. You have this amazing, beautiful house that seems to be very magical for you. But I'd love to hear about that. I could be completely wrong and deluding myself, but I felt that I wasn't really all I was doing... <laughs> I wasn't manipulating his emotions. I felt that I, I know him. I knew him. And I knew he would love it. I just also knew that he can be, like, once he's made a decision, he's like a lawyer. He could not see past the bunny wallpaper. <laughs> he could not see past the yellow. So he was not actually looking at the house. He was looking at the yellow. He was not looking at the kitchen, which had been a schoolhouse from 1710 that had been added on to make the kitchen. He he was not looking at that. Yeah, all the cosmetic things that he did. All those cosmetic things. So what I did was craft a spell where a little woodland creature hops in the house. Was it a fox I'm remembering? And it, yep, and it just eats the bunnies off the wallpaper and it jumps through a window and sits outside and looks at the house it's a new moon so it the house is just as black 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 as the bottom of the sea it just sees black i was really just removing the colors and not so much oh you will love this but those don't exist anymore for you Mm-hmm. you will not be distracted by this yeah like they're not there now mm-hmm. the bunny wallpaper is not there And it's not a yellow house now. Now you're going to see 
the bones of the house. And you're going to have your own idea of what color it should be, but we're going to agree because we, he just, he would, but he would always want the house to be black. Mm. But I mean, yeah, it's, it is a bad thing. But <laughs> How did he feel having, I don't know if you shared. Um, I totally did. Yeah. 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 Did, did you tell him after or was him reading about this the first time? No, I told him about and it. And what was his reaction? But he, he laughs. It's so funny because when we first got together, he had never experienced the coincidence. And I was like, how is that possible that you've gone through life and not experienced a coincidence? Yeah, that's I mean, weird. Right? Or notice them anyway. Yeah. So he would never believe in witchcraft. But after being with me, I mean, I didn't tell him that I was a witch. I didn't actually put it into words until after we were married. Yeah. And even then, I didn't, it wasn't like we had a sit down conversation. It just sort of slipped out in the middle of another conversation. But I was like, well, you, I mean, you knew, you, you knew. He did because his life almost from day one became filled with constant coincidence, just nonstop. And it, to this day. After is, you got together, you mean? After we got together, that part of his world opened up. Yeah, I was very charmed by your writing about your relationship with him because it reminds me of my relationship with my husband, where my husband is such a dear heart, lovely man. Mm -hmm. He would not describe himself as magical. I jokingly call him my muggle husband. Oh, yeah, but he's so supportive of what I do and, you know, has become much more open to it. And he's really proud that I'm a witch. And, you know, it's really lovely. And, and it seems like that's a similar vibe to you guys. It is. It's the same thing. And it's so funny because when I write a book, that's it. I've like, I wrote it and then I completely forget everything I've ever put in it. Mm. It's so out of my head. So I don't think what I'm about to tell you is even in the book, but maybe it is. Okay. I'll let you um, know. I just read it. So. Okay. So, but one thing he does is he'll come to me and be like, I can't find my sheet music. The sheet music that I ordered, Robin Holcomb, I can't find it anywhere. And it's like, I have no idea. What he's talking about? Who is Robin Holcomb? What sheet music for what? And then I'll be like, um, blue, blue, rib, ribs, like ribs, and you know what? Like a plastic. And he'll be like, oh, oh my God, you're right. The blue recycling bin out of the car. Of course, I must have put it. <laughs> yes. And he'll go. So whenever he loses anything, he comes to me, and even if it's something I've never seen. Because I have a weird thing where often I often I can I'll see it. I'll just like either I will or I won't. Usually I will, like eighty percent of the time, maybe eighty-five percent of the time. So handy. I know. And the funny <laughs> thing is, Mr. He's Swiss and logical. He behaves like he married a plumber. And it's like all he's asking for is another faucet in the basement next to the washing machine. He wants like a, <laughs> a sink, a slop sink. It's like totally to him, it's completely normal and makes all the sense in the world to ask where his belt is. I love that, though. I mean, because, you know, I feel like the people who love us, they don't necessarily have to be like us, but they absolutely have to affirm who and how we are. And it sounds like that's what he yeah. does for you. And that's really beautiful. Yeah, it does. You can't be with someone who doubts you 
or doesn't believe you. And that goes for any part of your life. You don't want to be with somebody who doesn't see you. That's why I've always, my advice for people who are looking for love (laughs) is never to like put your best foot forward on a first date. Don't ever make that mistake where you, you're your best self, you know, Mm. like don't do that. I mean, go on a first date like you're going to be going on a first date with yourself. You know, I mean, wear the clothes that make you the most comfortable. Do be exactly who you are with all your flaws, because things you think of as flaws are exactly the things that someone else, no matter how convinced you are that they're terrible flaws, those are going to be the very things that someone else cannot live without. They're going to be so endeared by. Those are your trademarks. And it takes time and age to realize the truth that our flaws are our strengths. It's just that they often have to be recycled or turned inside out like a sock or looked at upside down. I mean, I know in my life, all my flaws are all my strengths. You know, I couldn't really live in the real world. I have to write about like my life in order to even know what I'm thinking. Mm. Like how, how screwed up is that? Who doesn't even know what they're thinking? You know, <laughs> it's a useful thing. If you're going to be a writer, you know, I did. I never went to school. I never went to school for writing, never took a class in writing in my life. Oh my God. If I had, I never would have become a writer. I would have been so intimidated by, because look at all the amazing writers, but I didn't even read a book till I was 24. And so that ignorance was, and my lack of education, I have a fourth grade formal education. That was a, such a strength. That is exactly why I was able to write because I didn't know that there were the Ann Tylers in the world. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. So I could be myself. Oh, that's done. Christopher will say this to me, kind of not all the time, but all the time. And he's like, I, I know exactly who you are when I married you. I mean, I, you know, he's, nothing ever phases him. Ever oh, of me. That's such, you know? a, such a blessing, Augustine. I love that. And there's never criticism, you know, never. He doesn't want anything changed. And that's really how you have to, to be. And what you have to hold out for is finding the person as not a fixer upper, but as they are. Yes. Well, on those wise words, I'm going to take another quick break with you and we'll be right back. Hey, honey, a package arrived for you. It's gigantic. What's in it? Hooray! It's my Mithras candles. That's a lot of candles. Um, have you seen them? Mithras candles' signature dripped pillars look like they've been crafted for a wizard's secret library. Right, but... They look like they've been harvested from a magical cave of wax stalactites. Yes, but I... And their natural honey scent makes me feel so calm. You want me to feel calm, don't you? They're they're lovely, but how many do you really need? Well, there are also now Mithras candle votives, pyramids, and tapers. With so many different shapes and sizes, I can use them on my altar, in rituals, in our living room, on the dining room table, in the bath. Plus, they make the best gifts. Amy, we live in a two-bedroom apartment. Yes, but we're supporting a sweet small business. Remember, Mithras candles are handcrafted from the purest golden cappings beeswax by the loveliest folks in Philadelphia. Well, 
I was made in Philadelphia, too. Synchronicity, Matt. See, I'm glowing just thinking about it. Okay, well, giant boxes of Mithras candles being carried up the stairs it is. And if you did want to get me some more candles, just go to MithrasCandle.com and use offer code WITCH to get 10% off. That's M as in magic, I-T-H-R-A-S, Candle.com, and use offer code WITCH for 10% off. Got it. Offer code WITCH at MithrasCandle.com. Just pretend to be surprised. We never had this conversation. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today I'm speaking with Augustine Burroughs. So Augustine, there is so much else that I want to dive into and we'll see how much we can cover because I get the sense that I could speak with you for a very, very long time. So let, let me just ask you something that's coming to mind, which you didn't touch on in your book, which is you love jewelry and you have a very deep knowledge of it. Do you have a magical relationship with jewelry? Is jewelry talismanic for you? Are you into crystals and gemstones and those properties? Or is it more about just aesthetics and, and beauty for you? Okay, so it's a little bit of both. I'm not into crystals in the sense of I'm going to wear amethyst so that I can be very clear-headed. Mm -hmm. But I do have a very, very powerful connection. And I remember having, and I'm sure I wrote this in something I think I did. I grew up in Massachusetts, like I mentioned earlier, and we were near Mount Holyoke College. This would have been the 1970s. And there was an outdoor cafe and a bookshop in that area. And my mother would go there to write. My mother was a poet. And she would write in her black notebook. And I would sit at the table and have a brownie and a Coke. And one must probably was a Saturday. Um, she was writing. And I was looking at this woman with long, long, long blonde hair. And she was talking to a female companion, animated. And I could even hear little snippets of her. but. She was speaking in a language that I didn't know, but she had just very, very pale skin and long blonde hair. And her earring was just this long dangling with a gem on the bottom. And I was just, I couldn't stop staring at it. Mm. And she caught me. She sort of caught me looking at her and smiled. And she got up and she walked over to the table and she said something in her native tongue and she sort of tousled my hair and then she pulled it out of her ear mm -hmm. and she, she motioned for me to give her my hand and I did and she took the earring and she bent it around my finger and then gave me my hand back and then sort of pat me on the head again and went back to her table hmm. and I was just so astonished by that by her recognition of my fascination her unbelievable intuition and generosity yes so that experience has never happened again but it's happened all the time in mm. other words i will be drawn to jewelry finds me mm. And it always has. My grandmother on my father's side, so she was not a witch. And there was nothing witchy on that side of the family. But she did collect jade. So mm -hmm. I was especially fascinated with jade. 
which um, you know has been important in the Chinese culture for thousands of years. Augustine isn't supposed to be about attracting prosperity or good fortune. Am I remembering that correct? It is. That's exactly right. And and health. There are so many folk sayings in the Chinese culture about the importance of wearing a bangle, so that if you're hit by, you know, a carriage, it'll be the, the bangle that gets damaged and and not you. And mm. so I, I collect old jewelry. And I love it because sometimes I'll have a feeling about the person who had it. Like some jewelry that I have will make me incredibly sad. And I don't have that relationship where I can take an object belonging to somebody and intuit something from it. I don't have that channel. Okay. (laughs) And I know people who do, but with jewelry, sometimes I'll have such a strong sense i'll have a, a picture i mean it, and I'll, I'll forget that that like that it's coming from me like mm. i will forget that i don't actually know that yes yes because it just it's like it's speaking through the jewelry but i also just love when you look at handmade when you look at it you know under a loop or a microscope and you see the level the amount of work the mindfulness that goes into carving the undercarriage of a ring, you know, like I had this very humble carnelian ring from the mid 1800s. And it's just been carved. It's got such a deeply engraved shank. Somebody spent a week making this a week of their life, somebody with a family with worries and hopes. Absolutely. You know, carving jade can take years. One carving can take a masterful carver years to complete. And I, I love, you know, it's also why I love like old lace. I go to, I go often, I'll go to, um, if I'm like in a vintage store and I find like old handmade lace, I'll just get it. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just get it because it's like, my God, someone, made this it should be honored that's the thing about fake fur (laughs) it's like why i get so upset when i see young people wearing fake fur it's like no 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 don't do that you're actually wearing plastic you're wearing acrylic you know fur is a terrible thing but old fur that's what you should wear because an animal died we should honor that we shouldn't make new ones, but don't let them rot in vintage stores. Honor them. Take care of them. I get it. I get it. So I want to just put a final punctuation mark on the jewelry topic before we move on, just with a quick question, which is, do you have pieces of jewelry that are lucky for you or that you wear for a specifically magical purpose? Or it's more just about like the the energy or the, it almost sounds like the beautiful hauntedness of jewelry that you're attracted to. I have a ring that I wear and when I've worn it, I've had very, very odd, vivid dreams that have been prophetic. Hmm. I have some very valuable jewelry, but it's, it's never, it's never that. It's always some trinket. Yeah. I mean, it's always some little thing that I didn't expect, you know, that I'll be drawn to. 
and some of them are calming, have a very calming effect on me. Mm, mm, I love that. So I, I want to ask you, this feels somewhat related to me, at least. And you, you let me know if this resonates with you. You wrote very early on about your love of jewelry and you wanted to not be necessarily a, um, a hairstylist, but you wanted to have a, a hairstyling empire like Vidal Sassoon, which you write about in Running With Scissors. And, you know, there's this expression that often we witches say when we are revealing ourselves to people, which is that we are, quote unquote, coming out of the broom closet. Mm -hmm. And I wondered for you as someone who has had many coming outs, if that phrase coming out of the broom closet has a specific resonance for you or if it annoys you because as a queer person you actually came out of the closet I, I don't know I, I see these kinds of intersections between what we reveal to the world and the risk we take in that and I just wondered if you were drawing those kinds of parallels with revealing yourself as a witch to coming out as a queer person and writing about a dysfunctional childhood and all of these other coming outs that you've done you know, that's such a good question. It does resonate with me. I actually never came out as a queer person in the sense that I always knew that I was gay just as far back as I could remember. And growing up from you know, basically the age of 12 until I was 16, I was living with my mother's psychiatrist in this really chaotic, very, very, very untraditional household with adopted, quote-unquote, adopted children, psychiatric patients, and biological family members. And it was just such a state of chaos and lunacy that sexual orientation, my sexual orientation, was the last thing in the world anyone was thinking about. Mm. And I didn't go to school, so I stopped school in the fourth grade. So I was never in the closet. I just was, in the, when I've said this before, it's been misinterpreted. I never felt proud to be gay any more than I felt proud to be right-handed. I felt like it, I just am. It's not like a, I didn't achieve it. <laughs> so later in life, when I would meet people who, um, you know, read my books and they would share stories of their coming out experience you know and i would i would hear someone in their 30s maybe their 40s or even their 50s talking about coming out i could never relate it, it just didn't make any sense to me and now it does that's exactly what it was like for me coming out as a witch mm -hmm. with Oh my God. I mean, I'd never been nervous to go on a book tour before. Now I was nervous to go on a book tour. What are people going to think? I mean, I never think about what people are going to think. And now I was thinking about what are people going to think? So all the things that so many people have experienced before in, in different forms of coming out, I experienced. And I think it's probably been the, the biggest coming out. When I think about it, I can't really think of other times that I have. I mean, it's just. It made me evolve as a person. It made me 
I mean, I like to think of myself as not being judgmental, but I think I was mm. because I, in the back of my mind, when someone would come out or tell me that they came out late in life, I just would thinking, how's that possible? Like, how can you not know? You know? So it's like, people can totally say that to me too. Yeah. I didn't say you were rich early. Like you've had all these years. You've been writing books for, you know, whatever it is, 18 years. Why didn't you say that? Why didn't you start then? Mm-hmm. And my answer is so lame. You know, it's like, it was so in the closet that I didn't even know I was in the closet. You know, like what? <laughs> what were you afraid of? What were you afraid of in terms of, you know, writing this book or having this book published or going on tour? Being just a joke, you know, being like, oh my God, now he's a witch. Mm-hmm. And also I was really sensitive. I was, I'm hypersensitive to white male privilege. Mm -hmm. One of the Mm -hmm. other things I was bullied for was my taste in music was not, you know, I was, it was not shared by all the other white little boys in my class. I was the only little white boy that loved Odetta and that watched Soul Train and listened to R&B and wore platform shoes and I had a perm and wore an Afro pick. And, you know, it's horrible cultural appropriation, but I had no idea that I was being politically incorrect. Sure. And the only person at school that didn't bully me was the principal, and she was an African-American woman. And I would always go to her office and sit because that was the only safe place. So I believed from a very early age that Black women, that's where all sources of sanity and safety reside. And I cannot wait to get out of school because obviously black women run the world. Mm. And when I got out into the world, I realized how mistaken, you know, I actually was. Mm. So with my memoir, it's like, yeah, okay. Enough attention on, on me on that. You know, if I want to write fiction, fine. That made me uncomfortable. But I... I just had to live with the uncomfort of it because that's the book that I wrote. And, you know, one thing I've learned is that, um, you know, you know who doesn't read my books are white, white guys. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. It's like my, it's not my audience. Do you like, mean straight white guys or any white guys? You know, yeah, I mean, I know white guys do, but I mean, my audience is so hugely diverse. My book events are tons of young people from, Every possible imaginable background and bookstores always comment on it. The number one comment I have from booksellers is that I have an unusual audience. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's always been that way right from the beginning. I'm guessing that's because outsiders and misfits and underdogs, I mean, we come in all, you know, skin tones and genders. And of course, there's privilege that you and I hold as white people. But, you know, you as, first of all, you're married to a man, you are gay, I am a woman. So right off the bat, we're not quite as privileged as the white straight dudes. But, you know, nonetheless, there are white straight dudes who are also outsiders, even with their privilege. And that's one of the reasons I think the archetype of the witch and witchcraft in general is so attractive to so many of us who don't quite fit in to begin with. You know, it's this really powerful and I think affirming alternative paradigm of engaging with the world. So it doesn't surprise me that your audience is so diverse. One thing I heard, at least on the road, was how witchcraft 
in many ways continues to be dismissed. I think as I, we talked about, I think, and you mentioned it earlier, like there does seem to be this sort of uprising or a moment or a maybe a turning point. Mm-hmm. Sea change. Mm-hmm. It also feels like a lot of people still think that's not a thing. No, not a real thing. Like the scientific community. Sure. They're not going to turn around and study it. And that's so preposterous to me. Mm, mm. I always talk about like, you know, dogs can hear in a higher register of sound. They hear higher pitch sounds than we can hear as humans. So to us, those sounds aren't real. They don't exist. They're not real. They're not part of our life. They don't wake us up ever. And yet they are out there. They're there. Of course, there is something, some neuroanatomy in us that has not been labeled and is very difficult, obviously, to study in a clinical setting, but that is there. I mean, I just look at how many accomplishments and how many people must have been witches that didn't even know it. That's the thing. You know, you can be a witch your whole life and not know it. Or not use that word because the word has such negative associations in many contexts Uh still. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think of someone like Georgia O'Keeffe and I think, well, she had to be a witch. I mean, she just had to. Yeah. You know, she sort of saw Art Deco before Art Deco. She was so strong when it was so difficult to be that strong. Her artwork was not like anything else. Yes. Well, you're inadvertently touching on one of my very favorite topics, which is artists as witches and creatives as witches. And that's, I mean, we could talk about that all day, but I want to loop back to you um, because we're just coming up on time in a couple moments, but I'm going to ask you a question. I hope it doesn't come across as crass. No, it's okay. You, you know, have had the kind of writing career that so many writers dream about. I mean, your first book alone was on the New York Times bestsellers list and was number one for ever and a day, it seems like. And then you've gone on, you know, that book, Running With Scissors, became a film with Annette Benning in it, who got nominated for an Oscar. And then you've gone on to write all these other tremendous books. And I'm just wondering if, in addition to your innate talent, which you absolutely have, and the hard work that has gone into not only writing these books, but my goodness, transmuting your life into something really beautiful out of something really difficult. So I don't want to take any credit from you away. But do you think that magic or witchcraft has helped your career? Or have you used it to navigate your career in a way that might be useful for other aspiring creative people to hear about? I think that magic has helped me with focus. And I've always considered myself to be someone with a very bad memory. I'm terrible with names and I'm really bad. Like when we binge watch something on Hulu or Netflix, two weeks later, Christopher will mention it and I will not remember like what it was. I'm like like that too. It's so weird. And yet when I 
enter a space in my head when I sit down and I'm like, I'm going to write, I'm going to go back, I'm going to go back to when I was two. I first think I have no memory of being two. But then I'm able to get into this place where I'll, one thing, I'll find one thing, holding a saltine cracker up and looking through the hole and realizing that the world actually looked bigger by looking through the hole. And all this stuff will come flooding back and then I will write. And I have an extraordinary memory. I have to use a very interesting, odd door. So where witchcraft has been helpful is in terms of my mother. So my mother taught me was that in order to manifest something, you have to be able to visualize it in such a way that it's as if the molecules coalesce and that which you have decided will exist then coagulates into existence. Mm. So we would build, you know, like a memory palace together for years. And that's an ancient technique that was used to remember a great deal of information where you design and create in your mind a house and you know the, what the door looks like. And you know that when you open the door on the right is a chest of drawers that has six drawers on the top. And on the first drawer on the farthest right, that's where you have the feather of a hawk that you found. And so, you know, you go through the house and you furnish it and you decorate it and you put things in drawers. So when you need to gain information, you just have to visually go back. Oh, that's in a third bedroom, uh, end of the hallway. Sure. It has helped me stay in a state of mind, but I don't think I could use it for quote unquote success. Mm -hmm. I became a writer really by accident. I was drinking myself to death and in the middle of drinking myself to death, I sat down and wrote a little novel in seven days that made me laugh. And, and I stopped drinking four days in the process of writing that book. I didn't drink because it got in the way. And also the writing of this little book, I realized at the end was like, that's the feeling I've been searching for. Mm. I'm never going to drink again. And that book actually did get published. And it was a novel called Television. And I was paid enough for a brand new Gap wardrobe. <laughs> Living the high life. Yeah. And that was to me so much more than I ever could have imagined and dreamed. So when, when my memoir, um, when my publisher bought my next book, Running With Scissors, the big deal, they, they, I mean, they didn't pay me anything for it. I mean, you know, not much, but they were going to publish it in hardcover because my first book had been a paperback original. So now it was going to be a hardcover book. So now it felt like a real book. Yes. And that to me was success. That was everything. But then the book became a big publishing success in terms of like big. And my career became big. And I became like famous as a writer person. But by the time I was older, that was not anything I wanted at all. That didn't matter to me in the least. And then the irony of becoming famous as a writer, I've always been very gracious and I'm never a dick. I'm never an <laughs> asshole. I don't make any demands. Not a diva. No, never. And 
my feeling is that it's a privilege when someone pays money. You know, in order to buy a book for $25, you've got to earn, you know, 40 because of taxes. Mm. It's not a small chunk of change. And then to spend what, if you're a fast reader, maybe a day or two days or a week or a month in my head, I mean, it's a privilege. And to have people connect so deeply. So the success of my career for me has been meeting people that I never, ever would have met who have related to what I've written. And I've had that brief but intense connection with a stranger. And I've realized in a really profound way, I'm so not alone because I've always felt so alone. But there are so many strangers out there that I know I have so much in common with. Yes. And the thing is, you do too. And the person listening to this, they also have so much in common with all these strangers that they don't know. And I know that because I've had this incredible privilege of meeting millions of strangers um, all over the world, dirt poor, filthy rich, famous, not famous. And there are so many similarities. Mm. That's been the real amazing part of success. The witchcraft has not felt like something that has impacted my career in that way. But the qualities, I think, of being a witch have enriched my career and my appreciation of it and my gratitude for the opportunity to meet and connect with so many people. I mean, you know, you wake up in the morning and you're never, you're never famous when you're alone. I love that. It's so true. And nothing that you can ever buy is of any value when you hold it on your own. I have a strand of huge, natural Mississippi River pearls that are so valuable and so rare. And yet, if I'm the only one who sees them, you have to be able to share that with someone else. So that's why financial success is not actually a measure of success. Financial success can actually make you unhappier than you were before. True success comes with accepting yourself, your flaws, and your strengths, and not pretending anything away. True success comes from living with rock-bottom honesty in all your relationships and really feeling your life. It's weird because I feel so separate from my professional life. So the author, Augustin Burroughs, seems like a thing that mm -hmm. I, an outfit I put on, I put it on for book tours and then I take it right off as soon as I walk in the door. You know, I don't have any writer friends and I'm just, I absolutely never would bring it up to, I never talk about it. I, I'm glad, I love that the books matter to people. I don't need to hear about 
me. <laughs> well, on that note, Augustine, I just want to say that I'm so grateful that you allowed me to make you the topic of this conversation. And I am really grateful for the work that you've done and that you're doing. You have allowed so many people to feel seen and to feel connected. And I think the fact that you are now out and proud as a witch is going to be so helpful and affirming to so many more people. So I thank you for that work. Thank you for that. And it's been such a joy and a privilege to talk to you today. Thank you, Augustine. I look forward to more. You take good care. You too. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Augustine Burroughs for his openness about his occultedness and for sharing his sorcery and his stories. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop us an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on the witch wire. The Witch Wave is produced, written, and recorded by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was edited by Rachel Jacobs, thank you Rachel, and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and Eye by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman, Laura Antal, and Chiquita Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website, and now buy Witch Wave merch at witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us lots of sparkly stars. It really does make a difference and helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchWavePod. And you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. And please consider picking up my book, Waking the Witch, which is available everywhere now. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave. <laughs>